challenge is two or three assumptions that are just sitting out of um, your direct vision. They're kind of sitting in the periphery. One of them is, um, I want this. The other is, I know how to do it. Um, the other is, I know why I want to do it. Um, and so these assumptions of, well, success or, you know, achieving this next level of performance or outcome is what I want. And when you ask people, why do they want that? They kind of shrug their shoulders and go, well, isn't it obvious? I mean, you know, you want to be successful. You want, you want to get more money or you want to, you know, invent something new or you want to pioneer a, uh, a new approach. But why? And that, that means confronting the kind of deeper questions about why me, why am I doing this and who's it for? And, you know, what, what, what will I gain from doing this in the long run? And generally, um, people do have an answer to that, but they've just pushed it out to the periphery. Hello there, and a very warm welcome, or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high-performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance – whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work, individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. This week's guest is John Gomes. Now, John is a New York Times bestselling author and a business consultant to hundreds of CEOs and businesses. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of Outside, who utilise the latest research to support and develop well-being, leadership and organisational culture. His clients over the years include Google, Nike, Schneider Electric, BMW, TikTok, to name a few, but also including sports such as the Lawn Tennis Association, UK Sport and Manchester City. In John's new book, he delves into the latest research into mindset and how we've been limping along with an outdated definition for years. That is making the case that it is much more than just the beliefs and mental models that we carry. We get into this idea in our discussion and explore self-awareness, how we need to be more aware of how our emotions are formed, how to build a healthier, more agile mindset, the value of interoception and the perspectives of resilient people. Ultimately, this is a book about self-management, how we lead ourselves so that we're better able to lead others. And this is a concept that is central to everything that we do at Supporting Champions. John brings a lucidity to the work that he does and how he communicates that. And he strives to be more human and more connected in how he creates and supports others to high performance. And interestingly, over the years, he has evolved as a consultant and as a leader himself. And you'll get a sense of this in our discussion, how he's stayed abreast of research, thought about what he's seeing and observing and curated ideas to help others, kind of like some of the best applied scientists. John, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I am uh, really well, thank you. I've had a uh, good start to the year and I'm feeling uh, very optimistic despite everything that's happening in the world. Uh, okay. <laughs> all, all feelings are understandable in context. So you're doing well despite the, the climate. Yeah. Okay. Don't read too much. Yeah. I'm very well. Thank you. Very, very happy to connect with you. I always, always enjoy our conversations. So thank you so much for carving some time out to, to chat to me. Um, 
What's what's really fascinated me over the years of connecting with you is just how you've you've got this position of expertise around supporting and developing businesses and leaders, and you've transferred some of those lessons into sport. And I've sort of taken the different perspective of I've worked developing athletes and coaches over the years, and now I'm taking the lessons into into business. And so that's always just really fascinated me that that overlap. So um, it'd be great to, to sort of just lean on that just to start off with, just to get a sense as to what have you seen coming into sports and working with sports leaders and teams uh, and what the contrasts and the similarities and the lessons learned for, for both sides? Well, um, my experience with sport kind of goes back quite some way. I did a, a major kind of transformation, led a major transformation effort for the Women's Tennis Association um, when they were seeking to get parity in uh, prize money. And um, together with my team, we ran a set of what I only can describe as shuttle diplomacy between the WTA, the players' representatives, the um, you know, the majors um, like Wimbledon and uh, and US Open and so on to try and uh, figure out how to make that happen. And so I wasn't bringing any kind of performance lens to that. Uh, there was no psychology. Well, there was probably some. Um, it was more to do with trying to uh, find a, a way of getting people to to talk and listen to each other to gain perspectives because they were in a fairly adversarial uh, thing. So that, that kind of opened the door. And I think this is probably going back 20 so years. Um, I did a keynote for the 2012 um, kickoff for the, for the UK Olympics which was fascinating. Um, and I had 700 people in the room talking about um, how their mindset operated um, and shedding some light. And from there, I just got a slew of requests to come work with performance directors and their teams across lots of different sports. Um, I worked with Simon Timpson uh, for the last decade uh, with his team, who, as he headed up the, uh, the half a billion pounds worth of investment in um, in the UK system, the Olympic system, and subsequently worked with him uh, in tennis at the uh, LTA, um, and then now in Manchester City Football Club. So um, lots of different experiences in the sporting world. Um, mm-hmm. And well, I suppose to answer your question, um, the context is dramatically different. Um, you know, the product and the, the processes and so on are dramatically different, but all human problems uh, are the same in terms of how people see the world, how they relate to one another and, and the, the challenges that they face in, in any form of performance. And so there's just loads to be transferred between the two. Yeah. And, and are there any uh, glaring or repeated absences in sport that you you look across and think, okay, business would have probably sorted that out early or that's that's ingrained, but you commonly see that that is absent in sports? Um, well, I think, you know, if you look at what Simon did, for example, and, and, and various uh, successes in the Olympic system is that they tried to find a way of, um, creating repeatability around excellence. So they were, they were trying to understand how to put investment behind success as opposed to just level setting it across everybody and allowing personal loyalties and an absence of accountability and metrics and so on so um and I, and I think that's that's something businesses at its best is very good at doing when that gets dialed up too high then you can dial out the humanity and you can dial out the you know the, the real understanding of what success looks like in its different uh guises and um you know, Kath Bishop, who uh, we both know very well, would talk about, you know, success at all costs is not success. And and I think uh, that's something that you're you're kind of balancing the poles and, and nobody gets that completely right. It goes in eras and it swings and, and so on. So I think it takes leaders who hold the opposites, hold the balance between those things and, and they see the humans and they see the system and the outcomes that you're trying to get. And they don't choose upsides between those things. That's that's uh, you know I think business and sport both can learn from that all the time. And are there any specific changing trends that you've really noticed over the the decades that you've been supporting leaders 
where where we've where you you run a podcast, Evolving Leader. What are the the major things that have evolved? Well, there's a, there's a kind of cliche in virtually every management book that's been written in the last thirty or forty years, and I kind of cringe every time I see it, and particularly you know, uh, trying trying to avoid it in my own recent book, which is some form of the world is changing faster than ever before. It's changing faster in your organisation, and da da da. And there's a whole list of of things that are all the same things in terms of social trends, of technology, of business models, of legislation, of social norms, and so on that are changing. And uh, you know, human beings resist change subconsciously on, in so many ways. They, Some people love it. And if you're driving it in an organization, it's fun. If you're on the receiving end of it, it's not. So the thing, the big thing that I've noticed, because I've been involved in literally hundreds of major global uh, change initiatives, seeing what works, doesn't work, is is both the speed of change, um, how fast things are now expected to be done, um, whether or not you can actually achieve the, the things that people are expecting in the timeframes they're talking about, but the expectation of change speed is there. The complexity of it is just uh, you know enormous. And one of the problems with that, I think, is that um, very few people actually understand what they're doing in that change. So, um, I mean, if you if you think about you know, for example, something like cryptocurrency, well. Nobody really understands that. Gillian Tett in the Financial Times described it as you need three world-class skills in order to be able to understand cryptocurrency. If your business is actually building a cryptocurrency platform or trying to trade in it and so on, and you don't understand it, what happens then is that you entrust um, knowledge to experts within your business who don't have the context. And so you want the value, but you're not really necessarily understanding the consequences. And that's how the 2008 financial crisis happened. So I think, you know, more of these kind of exceptional events of disruption and, and uh, swings uh, between, you know, kind of golden periods of growth and then these very disruptive, uh, they are the events are actually accelerating, and uh, up to this point, we didn't, we weren't really sure whether this word uncertainty was true. You know, the world's always uncertain, but the IMF have done a very long-term study looking at now, and they've just released something called the uh, the Global Uncertainty Index. And what it shows is since the Second World War, you know, you've got this rising um, uh, degree of uncertainty in the world from a political, political and economic level, but in the last five or six years, it's just spiked beyond belief. What that means is that more of the problems that leaders are faced with trying to solve don't have a kind of A to B, a linear outcome. You, you know, here's the input, there's the outcome. They're non-linear. You don't know what you're building and what the consequences of that. Um, so you're trying to solve non-linear problems, and that, that's something I'm seeing as a big trend. Mm. And um, I noticed that you um, take a little bit of a, a slight against the idea of new normal in the sense of, sorry, in your new book, um, leading in a nonlinear world. So you can see I've, I've uh, dog, dog-eared and uh, I've added a load of post-it notes to, to points of interest. I've given it a scroll as well. Um, for me, that's the highest honour of a book of of adding little notes. <laughs> no, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't edited it. Um, <laughs> um, new normal about almost, okay, you know, we've all gone through this global pandemic and, um, and, and changes in the political landscape and so on. Oh, and it's going to settle down now. Uh, that's some sort of assumption. The new normal, we'll just cope with it and, and you know, keep calm and carry on. When actually... It, it's not going to settle down. We've got to f- develop the tools and the skills to navigate a changing world and a changing landscape and one that we wouldn't be able to necessarily predict. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- this idea of um, there's no new, uh, sorry, there's no new normal, there's just new, came from my long-term collaborator, collaborator <laughs> Anami Ress, who I've done many large um, change programs with, and we worked together at eBay for a long time. And, 
she she's been saying this for for a considerable number of years and i think the the truth of it is, is that the sort of changes that we're talking about now are not events that the world settles back down to afterwards they're not like the oil crisis what they are is changes that actually generate more changes and unforeseen ones so um you know if you think about the the proliferation of social media um and the vast rise of interaction into that environment we didn't know what the consequences of that are going to be we didn't know that there was going to be an epidemic of child suicides as a result of 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 that environment and we didn't realize that the moral responsibility of those leaders was inadequate to face the power of what they've created and when we have the metaverse which is you know kind of even more kind of involving and uh, and significant from that point of view who knows how to to kind of solve that set of problems you know i certainly have no idea what that's going to look like i've got a few clues um from the work i've been doing but i think you know more and more of what we're faced with um presents itself as being a non-linear explosion of challenges um and you know the big ones like climate change and uh you know the, the geopolitical landscape that's unfolding at the moment are are just several you know that we could name mm. and so um i mean perhaps we've touched on it a little bit but uh why did you write the book i wrote the book i think in part to understand myself better as much as anything else i'm fa- i've always you know i studied um neuro neurobiology when i was at, at university and uh, whilst I didn't pursue that field, um, I've always kept interested in it. And as we talked about before, you know, like I've set up a neuroscience division within our organization with uh, neuroscience and residents and a big community of people that we work with to translate that knowledge. And I think what I, the reason for that was that over the course of the time I've been working, the approaches to change have always been there's always been something missing so if you think about other big ideas about how to drive change they've they've fitted into four big categories strategy ideas behavioralism you know like decode the behavior of you know good to great find out what great leaders do decode them into a series of behaviors um culture you know how to create a culture where everybody kind of sees these things as normal and has the means to um, to make these things happen. And the fourth one is the the kind of the fuzzy one, which is some sort of psychological shift or strategy. Uh, and it's the the one that the concrete world <clears throat> finds least appealing because it, it feels intangible and unmeasurable and so on. And it's in that area that actually it becomes the murkiest. And that's the bit that I wanted to uh, to focus in. So the, the, the idea of trying to um, discover what is missing in how we uh, make sense of the world and how we lead ourselves through that uh, set of challenges and how organizations and leaders can do it. That's That, that was the, the mission. And the book's been sort of 30 years in the, in the making as a result. And did you have um, did you have a... I don't know whether it was a, a, a publisher requirement, but did you have a target? Who is this for? So this is the, the non-publishing you know publishing, uh, answer. It's for me. <laughs> it's for me. <laughs> the book was for me. It's the book I wanted to to read. And, um, and, I, and I, I know that sounds a bit strange, but, you know, I have led very significant change efforts in organizations and wanted to figure out how to do them better. And, and to help myself and my team and the other and other people, but I also wrote this book with my children in mind because, in terms of what I think the next generation needs to face this is not more technical knowledge. There's an abundance of that. It's more knowledge about who you are in this environment and how you make sense of this world. Um, because there are fundamentally four things that we do to create value in social enterprise and organizations. And that is, we make sense of what's happening in a situation. We weigh up our options. We solve problems creatively and we form sustained relationships. And in the world of AI, those are the things that are going to make you successful. Um, not that, you know, 
knowing how to use chat GPT, not being able to just get the latest um, new software coding. Yes, those are essential, obviously. Skills are essential, but it's actually your mindset that's going to make the difference about whether you are able to sustain yourself in this environment, both from a well-being and health perspective, and whether you're able to really be able to discern where you need to focus yourself. Um, so I, I've written it for myself, my family, and then for the wider world. So I, I hope it I hope it appeals to leaders and um you know that's really important. But I also would hope that it has a wider appeal. And um just as you're talking there, I, I remember a conversation with my youngest and um and we were talking about social media and it was all kicking off on Snapchat and you know and she was feeling a bit rubbish about herself, going worried about the next day going into school and and this was a few years ago now when she was a bit younger when she first got a phone, probably about 12 something like that and said to me dad what did how, how did you navigate this how did you cope with social media i said well, i got a phone mobile phone when i, I was 26 and I, and I don't think it had anything social on there for another 20 years or so i don't know and so it wasn't a case of i can offer you a method or a tactic or or something about what you should write, what forum you should be on, whatever it might be. It was more about who who are you, what are your values, how do you want to come across, how do you want to affect other people, um, and so I was I was delighted to to sort of see the front end of the book that strong sense about self care, self awareness, and and a mindful approach to who we are. And recognition of some of our inherent perspectives, biases, heuristics. And I was reminded of that that quote, N-A-N-N, uh, around we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are. Um, and so what, what drove you to focus in on this, this deeper self as a start point for leading? Um, well, it was a curious thing. I mean, it, it had two ends to it. The one was um, the science of sense-making. And that's a kind of multidisciplinary set of things that I looked at. And the other was this curious thing that sort of bothered me, which was this word mindset. Um, and working a lot in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years and, um, and all across the world, this, this word starts to become more and more popular. And obviously, Carol Dweck's work had a big influence on it because the Silicon Valley mindset just loves the idea that anything's possible if you just decide it is. Yeah. Um, but when I ask people, and we we have asked thousands of people this question, what do you mean by the word mindset? It divides us into two kind of camps, broad camps. The first is sort of derivation of the dictionary definition of attitudes and beliefs and, 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 uh, and, and how you show up. But it departs very quickly there for most people because they start to then use it to describe the personality or the the kind of competency or social fit of individuals. So it becomes much more judgmental than a, a than a kind of accurate description of what people's mindset is. And then the other one, which is if that's the kind of interior about how people think, the other definition is nothing to do with people. It's to do with the ideas that they uh, they subscribe to. Um, so that could be like a Brexit mindset. You know, it's nothing to do with you as an individual. It's not about you or beliefs and so on per se. It's the fact that you look at the world through a particular lens, um, and it could be like a Cold War mindset, or it could be you know. So the, the word has got multiple meanings, and so. I was fascinated with that because it was a, it has been ascribed so much meaning in organizations. So I, I, I latched onto that and started asking people what they really meant. And in depth interviews, what they really meant was this is how this person sees the world. But we don't just see the world through our beliefs. We don't just see the world through the mental models that we carry. Our perception and our construction of the world is much more complicated than that. And so I started to build this picture from neuroscience and experimental psychology of feel, think, and see. And that's that led, led me on probably a 
10-year journey to come up with this redefinition of the word mindset then becomes much more actionable, both in terms of understanding what it is, how we really make sense of the world, and what we can do to build mindsets that make us healthier, make us more productive, make us more um, satisfied with our, our, our lives, and allow us to adapt to the realities of, of what's happening in the world. And, and you know, the very first page of the, of the book, chapter one, what is mindset? And um, challenging that, that dictionary definition, fixed set of beliefs and attitudes that shape our actions that is quite um that's quite, sounds quite a fixed equation doesn't it yeah and it's very binary because you know how many times have you experienced behaving against your beliefs for a whole host of reasons not not just your your biases but all sorts of kind of feelings and and context and so on so it's it's far too limited a description or a word to describe human you know motivation and behavior um and of course it's 100 years old and it wasn't ever really i mean the 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 scientists that came up with the description probably never intended it to be you know uh, received in that way so it's a word as in many words that can't carry the true meaning um that that they hold for people and and i suppose that simple idea of of all behaviors understandable in context um sets the tone for us thinking about ourselves not as computers, that sort of non-computer model that you've talked to me a lot about over the years, that we, we're not just on or off. Uh, we have rhythms, we have, we have pulses, we have fears and hopes and drivers that, that move us. And each of those set a unique context in our life experience that we've got to try and find a way to, to navigate through that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the other kind of like hopeful part of the book, which is when the world becomes feeling, when the world feels very overwhelming and you're relying either on your track record or your skill set, it feels like it's overwhelmed. Um, one of the things that is really helpful is to recognize that we probably have, we defer judgment, we probably have got a whole set of resources to make sense of what's happening to us that we just never draw upon. If we just paused and started to, to think about tapping into those multi-dimensional layers of consciousness and self-awareness that comprise our mindset. And so, so if I can get into that a little bit around um, your, your model for how to build a mindset. So just to go through the, the different stages for people who are listening Stage one being keep focusing on what you really want to being define your problems in fine granularity. Number three, what are your emotions telling you? And number four, reframe to feel, think, see, act differently. I was wondering if I could just go through uh, some of those ideas with you uh, very briefly. What, what, um, it's, it's a lovely model. It's very simple. It's memorable. Um, but I can imagine that it, people looking at it for the first time, I, well, I certainly looked at it and thought, if, you, if I stay with this for a period of time, I might end up a, ma- up a mountain and meditating deeply <laughs> and rethinking whether I really need to buy this or go there. Um, so the first stage, keep focusing on what you really want. Uh, talk me through the thinking for it. Um, and how how sort of deep should someone go on that? Well, I think you, you, you go as deep as the the challenge uh, confronting you requires. But to prevent people feeling daunted, it might be worth just saying a tiny little bit of context around why why I've come up with this uh, approach to it. The first is um, that when it boils down to it, your mindset is comprised of different dimensions of self-awareness and that word self-awareness for most people is a fairly fuzzy concept so we break it down into just layers like of, of kind of the onion it starts with a, a, a the most fundamental layer which is consciousness a sense of self and that's been much disputed and agonized over by philosophers and scientists for a long time but in the last decade it's become much clearer as to what 
consciousness actually is and that it's grounded in conscious feelings thirst and hunger and fear and so on that um, are not emotions but are, are enable us to to manage our metabolism in the environment and funnily enough we most of us are cut off deeply to that sense of self um, because we don't pay any time you know zoning into it and actually the simple process of zoning into it enables the flow of information to the other layers of our consciousness and therefore to unlock all sorts of interior resources that we can come onto later on that allow us to be, you know, to be better simply. The next layer is to tap into physical feelings. This is the ne- the kind of the sum total of what's going on in, uh, in our body, bearing in mind our metabolism, otherwise known as interoception. There's just a slew of exciting research showing that when this is working well, gives us a massive competitive advantage, both as sports people, as business mm. people, and, and from our health. I, I did a, f- a part of my undergraduate um, studies looking for an overtraining marker. This is back in 1994. And it, the conclusion then was that you, the, this marker that, uh, that might show up for these set of conditions, or this marker, and now these got, got these biometrics and wearables and uh, blood profiling, and it still tends to boil down to how are you feeling? How are you feeling? And and actually don't go too granular in terms of muscle soreness or sleep early on. Just just give me a rating. And these are far, far more predictable as to whether someone's about to break down or is struggling with training um, than any of the tech that's available currently and probably will be in the future. Because because ultimately, it, it probably does ask somebody to get into that interoception question about where you're at physically. Yeah. Well, you know, what's fascinating about that is the amount of data that the body is is gathering and processing and interpreting is vast. And no, you know, kind of little sensor on your arm is going to be able to, to capture that. It'll capture some of it. And, and, you know, it'll provide you in fine granularity, but it won't capture what your brain, particularly your insular cortex, can do with that information. Because when that information is flowing really well, it allows you to mobilize resources to respond to challenge, be that physical challenge or a relational challenge or a problem solving before you need it. Body knows before your mind when you need things, and when when that's working, that gives you a massive competitive advantage. So then we kind of move into the the, the kind of emotional self awareness, and there are two forms of emotional self awareness that are predicated on a completely new way of thinking about what emotions are. So in the book, we talk about the work of people like Lisa Feldman Barrett, who've come up with the constructed theory of emotion. Emotions aren't hardwired responses like the chimp paradox. They are, we've got now 30 years of evidence showing that classical model of emotions is wrong and, and largely unhelpful in interpreting how to make sense of the world. Um, and all the models that are built out of that are actually lead us down the wrong path in terms of what emotions are. Instead, we construct emotions to make sense of the world. And when we understand that and we understand how to uh, how to interpret it again, which is I kind of lay out in the book. Two things happen. One is that you can start to think about intentionally building and owning the emotions that you feel in different situations through different processes. And interestingly, you can then start to gain greater psychological freedom because you get control over that process. You're not subject to it, and then have to stuff it down or find a coping mechanism or you know, focus on something else. No, you embrace them, interpret it, and move the consciousness down level um, so that you can focus on the thing that's constructing the emotions rather than the, them themselves. Next layer up is meta-emotions, the ability to, you know, how we think about what we're feeling emotionally and what that can tell us about those emotions. And then we move into um, our metacognition, which is our ability to think about how we're thinking across all the different levels, but mostly um, whether I think I'm right or wrong in situations of uncertainty and risk. And then how we externalize that metacognition to see ourselves from through the eyes of other people. So if you look at all these different layers of the Jungian, 
that self-awareness. And, and I think for most of us, that feels quite complicated. But when you start playing with it, it all joins up together. They're all linked. Um, the causality there is incredible because when you break the first link, when you're not aware of what's going on, then you, you create a whole set of um, false assumptions about what's happening to you in the world. And that's what I'm, I'm really interested in. That, that, that's, that's really sort of, as you say, breaking the link or it's just creating that sort of sense of, of preventing yourself from reacting to it and it's spiraling and the, the layers or the steps that you're talking about, which I think are, are really helpful in the book. It seems as though it, it actually just sort of detaches it a little bit. It objectifies, it externalizes it, it recognizes it. It's quite a mindful thing, but it also then, as soon as you start looking at it, understanding it, and now what am I thinking about it? It just feels a long way from that pulse of adrenaline and uh, and a shift to to an emotional state, as opposed to um, well, actually, yeah, getting control, as you say. Well, for a large a large number of people, and this is not for everybody. But, you know, a number of the things that go wrong in your life are kind of hallmarked by negative emotional reactions that become overwhelming and undermine your ability to think, make you act out, make you, um, you know, damage relationships and so on. And for a lot of people that I coach and for myself, you know, getting on top of that and finding a different way to approach it that doesn't involve some form of uh, suppression has been incredibly powerful finding another way through that, which I talk about. And, um, you know, for the people I coach, um, it literally has been life changing, uh, for, for many of them. And so I think this picture of how we make sense of the world gives us more agency, gives us more control, more options, uh, to deal with a, uh, you know, a, a very difficult environment. So anyway, can I come back to your four questions about the, the, the question? Yes, yes, yeah. Please do, yeah. So I'll try and I'll try and do this uh, fairly high level. So I, I think the it starts with you know, defining what you really want, and the really is the the key to this because when you ask people about their goals and objectives, as you know, Steve, a lot of the time they take what has been projected onto them by the ambition of others and. Uh, the expectations of family, friends, coaches, business leaders, and so on. They don't really have an answer to the question, what do they really want? And if you scale that up into a, a leadership team in a large organization, you ask them the same question, they kind of shrug their shoulders and smile. In other words, saying, well, we're just doing what we're expected to do by you know, the CEO or the shareholders or the customers. It's always sort of pushed out into the ether, even if they are the people that really get to decide. So the first question is the hardest one, which is what do you really want? And unless you have pushed yourself to define that, then building a mindset isn't really ever going to stick. Um, and, and, and working with thousands of people on behavioral change and trying techniques like habit, you know, habit adoption. So on, we found that it just didn't work. You know, trying to form habits works in very simple behaviors, but anything that's complicated and is interdependent falls apart because ultimately people don't have a why that propels it. So that's the first bit. The second piece is that we can often confuse a goal and objective uh, with the means to making it happen. This is what I'm trying to do. This is what how I'm going to do it. Get on with it. And then they find out that they don't actually know how to do it. They're doing things for the first time. Um, they are gaining feedback from their own bodies, from their minds, from other people that they never encountered before. And so they give up uh, or, or they take a path of least resistance and do something easier instead. So one of the things to, you know, to move from the, you know, I really want to do this is, I then need to discover the problems I really need to solve in fine granularity. And that defining problems to solve helps you to create breakthroughs because what it recognizes is you don't know, you've got blind spots, you're doing things for the first time, which you're going to feel incompetent about. And accepting that, accepting all of that stuff that you're trying to solve problems as opposed to implement, you know, sort of well, you know, successful strategies helps people to overcome failure and to keep pushing at finding a better way and so on. 
in that, the third kind of thing then is that you will experience negative feelings, um, physical feelings and of, you know, exhaustion or fatigue or doubt, uh, emotions of uncertainty and fear and so on. And instead of allowing those to prevent you from moving forward, you just need to interpret them as fundamental needs. They are error signals signaling that you are not getting what you need. So you're not getting what you need from a sustainability point of view, from feeling valued by others, from being clear about what's going on in the situation, from feeling social connection, from feeling purpose and so on. So when you read the emotions, they help you to solve the problems. And then the final piece really is um, reframing really is recognizing that you know the the c part of mindset is that is to avoid frame fixedness in other words when we look at the world we hold a frame up to it it might be a financialization frame or a customer frame or a people frame or whatever it is and if we're holding the wrong frame up we get the wrong information we ignore the wrong things we can't see the right things and so on so do we need to reframe do we need to hold another frame up to the situation to prevent pattern recognition turning into pattern expectation or the marginalization of information that's really important to us. And we found that this process accelerates the development of mindset at all the different levels of consciousness. And and uh, in terms of its applicability, um, my question was going to be who's again who's this for but i can understand i can appreciate or recognize that you could you could use this with an individual leader about what are you trying to achieve in in life in in your work for your team uh for your organization there's there's different layers for that um that i can sense that you could apply this um and what are you hearing um from leaders when you're holding them at that first question what what do you want um because i can imagine it could go off in all sorts of different directions i want to keep the shareholders off my back or i want to i want to achieve this new level of promotion or i i want to be happy or i want to spend time with my family for once in my career um what are you hearing when when you really really keep them to that question and dig a bit deeper than just, as you say, the the obvious objectives that people sort of just turn out? A number of things. I think the first is that it challenges the assumption, or challenges two or three assumptions that are just sitting out of um, your direct vision. They're kind of sitting in the periphery. One of them is... Um, I want this. The other is I know how to do it. Um, the other is I know why I want to do it. Um, and so these assumptions of, well, success or, you know, achieving this next level of performance or outcome is what I want. And when you ask people, why do they want that? They kind of shrug their shoulders and go, well, isn't it obvious? I mean, you know, you want to be successful. You want, you want to get more money or you want to, you know, invent something new or you want to pioneer a, uh, a new approach. But why? And that, that means confronting the kind of deeper questions about why me? Why am I doing this and who's it for? And, you know, what, what, what will I gain from doing this in the long run? And generally, uh, people do have an answer to that, but they've just pushed it out to the periphery. It's it, it's very rare, I find, that people are going, you're right, I need to become a poet and, you know, sell my house and run off to Spain. And, you know, that's not what happens in these situations. They're on the right course, but what they've done is they've lost sight of really being clear about why. And once they reconnect with that, it reinvigorates them. It gives them much more clarity and it propels them to to do the thing that is often missing in this, which is to take deep accountability for what they say they want. And I, I was pleased to see 80-year-old self turn up in the book uh, and that question of of longer-term perspective, retro retrospective view as to what do you think you're going to think in the future? Um, 
and you often see these on social media, don't you? The the sort of feedback from from you know people things that people don't say on their deathbeds um and the things that they do say on their deaths deathbeds and it, and it may sound a bit macabre but actually i think it's a very helpful perspective to keep aligned to of when you close your eyes or that, those those sunset years um you close your eyes for the last time what are you going to be content about that does certainly throw forward a lot of quite different drivers about how we're living our lives how we're engaging with people the the decisions that we're making and potentially softens some of the bravery that you might need and you think oh this is going to be difficult this is going to be a challenge well actually i think my my future self would be proud of that and and your future self also um can as you say be more gentle with you in the sense that you you're not super person you're not a super person you're not a superhero um you're you're in the human struggle, like all of us, trying to do the best you can with what you've got and the situations that confront you. And doing the right thing by by yourself and your family and the people that you work with is in itself a, a noble struggle. And we should be pleased that that we're, you know, we're living our values in that sense. I think the bit that, you know, is useful in this uh, kind of um, future back exercise is to keep on asking yourself, well, why me? Why now? Why why this? Why not mm. something else? Because the other thing that it, it does is it gives you more options. You know, you might still be trying to pursue this, um, you know, this goal, but you might be able to do it in a different way. You might not be so hard on yourself and by, you know, the, the story that you've told about why he has to do it this way as opposed to, to some other means of achieving it. And just to step back from, um, I mean, you lay out so many exercises, um, the, the tables it can it almost feels like a worksheet that you can you can use and abuse the book or photocopy and, and kind of revisit over time um what's your sort of steer for people who are really trying to sort of step into this world of rather than just thinking about the now and the tactical and the strategic and the demand that's in front of them to be investing time into a process of of care of uh of perspective uh, time out of task rather than on task. Um, I, what, have you got a sense of of the, the amount of time that this actually takes to invest into into their work, so that hopefully it returns uh, for them? Well, I I think, and this is what I did um, prior to writing the book in the first year of COVID. I had a year of personal experimentation because, as you know, Steve, I've been doing this stuff for a very long time, you know, experimenting myself and working with my team on these things. But what I did was to to really use the, 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 the slight freedom I had from not having to travel so much um, to, to use certain parts of the day to, to run, you know, experiments and i mean experiments in the looser sense of exploring for myself the hypothesis if i do this what will happen and in the book i i talk about one of those in a lot of detail because it made a breakthrough in terms of creating greater uh interoceptive sensitivity and i i am still doing that and it, it's been yielded me tremendous benefits and it takes 30 seconds in the morning and it takes about two or three minutes in the evening to capture, you know, what's happened as a result. And then maybe once a month, probably another 10, 15 minutes just to consolidate that. Um, so all the things I'm talking about are little kind of mindset hacks don't take very long. They're things that you should be able to sort of incorporate into everyday life. And, and, and that, that's really important because it, otherwise they're just fighting with your life. Can you just um, talk us through that? You've got your own little mental body scan system going on, haven't you? Yeah. So this isn't a spiritual thing at all. What um, I was fascinated was the work of people uh, like Sarah Garfinkel and Hugo Critchley, two of the world's leading researchers into interoception. They have, over the last decade uncovered just as and and others around the world because it's become a big a big kind of community just some fascinating research showing that when you are you have greater sensitivity and awareness of your interoception um then 
it plays out in lots of health outcomes and judgment outcomes and so on. So your interoception can be measured very simply by um, your ability to gauge your heart rate over the course of a minute. And so the, the test that Hugo Critchley created, which has now become the gold standard in, in neuroscience testing and psychology testing, is that your heart rate is measured accurately, independently through a heart rate monitor. And at the same time, over the course of a minute, you estimate your heart rate, um, the number of beats in a minute. And the difference between that is your accuracy. There's a little formula that I, I lay out in the book um, that they use. And the more accurate that is, the more aware you are of your heart rate, because all the uh, sensors within your body aggregate or pool into the heart. So it's a great, simple way of being able to know whether you've got sensitivity to it. And then the vagus nerve transfers that information to the insular cortex, which is profoundly important in a whole range of self-regulation um, and management of resources in the brain. And one exciting kind of thing for me was that I just practiced this body scan, which is simply in the first 30 seconds when you wake up, when you're not feeling anything, when you're not thinking anything, you have this rawest kind of experience of, of, of consciousness, the sense of self. You could be anywhere. You could be in a hotel in Japan, or you could be, you know, back at home with your parents or whatever it was. You don't quite know where you are. And it's a nice kind of disorientation. Tapping into your physical sense of self, running your mind's eye from the top of your head, lingering at your forehead, at your your throat, your chest, your stomach, and, and progressively down. What that does by asking yourself, how's it doing? How's my body doing? How's it feeling? That just increases the flow of information through your body to the brain. By doing that, I was able to, after even just a, a week, see a marked increase in my interoceptive accuracy. Um, and then over the course of, I did it over the course of 441 days in terms of really measuring it. What I also did was correlate that with variables like alcohol intake, quality of my food, exercise, um, emotional outages, you know, where we have an argument with somebody or there'll be some, you know, kind of crisis, like somebody like they're not going to sign the contract this year or something like that, you know, where you, you're, you're, um, you're experiencing negative emotions. I track that, the, all those variables against my interoception and could see that my ability to manage all of those things improve steadily as my interoception went up. So that describes the kind of tangible bits, but the, mm. the bit that nobody can expect experience um, or it describe adequately with words was that at the same time during COVID, when things were looking very bleak and there was the existential crisis to all of us and our business and so on, I felt the greatest degree of psychological freedom and mental space that I've ever experienced. And I noticed on numerous occasions where it might otherwise have been hijacked emotionally that I didn't, it didn't happen. Um, so I just know that this one thing was, was pretty transformative. Yeah, that's, I mean, I really like the the practice, and I, and it got me thinking as I was reading through your case report. It's not too dissimilar from what we'd encourage athletes to do would be take their resting heart rate, waking heart rate specifically, and first thing in the morning to to journal how they're feeling, get a sense of of how they are, and and some subjective feelings before then they might engage into some sort of actual actual monitoring, some baseline measurements with with their science support team. Um, but it it um waking heart rate is is slightly different from your resting heart rate, um, in the sense that you could sit down but you'd still be experiencing the world. Someone might be stomping about and you'd 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 have some sort of afferent input Whereas that waking moment actually is is quite a precious and very pure version, yeah. And, and, and I read through it and really thought actually that's really quite nice. Just holding your mind there too, not just thinking about the physiological response in that in that little window. So um, so it's got it's it, you found that there's actually a it's like a mindfulness improvement because with mindfulness training, you get a, you get F from fMRI scanners. You can see a thickening of the, 
of some of your, your brain tissue, you're actually getting a training effect, an improvement in the scores and also your interpretation, your handling of your working life too. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that, that's fascinating about all of this is that all of these forms of self-awareness, mindfulness, um, which is, I, I try to avoid the word mindfulness a lot um, because it's tied up in people's, you know, I know what you mean. It, it it can it can be. Oh, I'm not really into that. But there's a mindful approach of thinking. How am I? Yeah, and it, it is incredibly powerful. But mm. a lot of people, as you say, have tried it and they don't see any immediate benefit, or they don't think it's for them, or they're so wired up that trying to come down to that level of calm for any period of time just feels like an irritation, a distraction, or you know, getting in the way. So I, I tried to, to kind of look at it more in terms of what's actually happening to you um, and start from building it up from there so that you can appreciate the benefit, not not just like take the pill and get the placebo effect or get the effect, but actually understand what you need and how this could help you. The other piece I should add to this, which is another, another kind of uh, major benefit, is... I was having this conversation with Lisa Felwyn Barrett, who some of your listeners might know uh, well, who's like the pioneer of this idea of constructive emotion, an amazing individual. Um, that when, when I was talking to her about this, she said, you know, that the thing that this will help you, and I noticed this so profoundly, was that when you wake up and you are under-resourced, so you don't notice this physical state of your metabolism. So you might be tired because you haven't slept well. You might have drunk too much. You might have an argument with your wife or husband or partner before you went to sleep. Or your kids woke you up in the middle of the night. Or you just went to bed with too much cortisol and adrenaline coursing through your veins because of you know the frantic you know, day or week before you for this. You wake up and you feel awful, but you don't zone into the fact that that's a physical metabolic state and the first impact of that is as you're in the shower and you're thinking about the day ahead that physical effect starts to generate negative emotions my day is going to be terrible that journey to work is going to be awful the meeting with bob is going to be a disaster i don't want to do that piece of work and so on and what you've done in that moment is you've created a disconnect between what's going on inside your body and the emotions you've created. And when you don't feel resourced and you're not aware of that, the reaction is an unconscious form of resentment. And that is toxic to an athlete, to a team member, to a family, to friendship, to performance in general. So when you uh, do zone into this, it's not like it goes away. I am feeling awful. I'm feeling crappy right now. I'm not, by the way. But, you know, I wake up and I feel like that. I I can own it. Yeah. I can own it and go, <laughs> it's not about the day ahead. <laughs> it's me. I'm under-resourced. And so I can be more gentle on myself. I can be more patient with other people. I can also, and that's the short term, but the long term I can go, well, why did I get here? I can start to see the pattern of what I'm doing in my life is leading to this, which a lot of people are disconnected from and they blame the environment um, and they lose deep accountability to themselves and their bodies. Yeah, and an example that sort of springs to mind is that, that when I'm coaching people and helping their sleep and typically well, people will wake up and rate their sleep and they will ask themselves a question of how was my night's sleep? And... That's a, that's a good thing for them to ask. So that's sort of a bronze medal. Uh, it gets them going, but it, it, it almost feels like the night sort of has done something to them. <laughs> and um, it's like, you know, I, I've, been, I've been put through the mill or I start thinking about it was a bit fragmented. It was a bit broken. I was a bit disturbed. And you start thinking more about the, the outcome of the sleep as opposed to uh, actually thinking, well, how refreshed do I feel? Um, how re Because I might have had a really broken night's sleep, but I feel okay. I feel good. 
And and so that in itself means that you're putting a slightly different question or a different frame, as you might say, around your experience overnight. And so it does sort of two things. If you've had a good night's sleep, but you've had a it's been broken, it puts you in a much more positive mindset. Actually, that's good. Um, but how refreshed do I feel? It often helps people with a place of when I don't feel refreshed. So now what? It sort of it moves them on to that next question rather than thinking, I don't feel refreshed. Oh, no, the world's against me. And as you say, that sort of resentment spiral, um, it moves them forward into. And so what could I do about that to help me manage myself through the day uh, rather than just being the victim? Yeah. Hey, look, this is, this is super interesting, and it sort of leads on to this idea that, that actually what you've done there is this sort of experiment on yourself with this test, or you found some momentum with that. And, and that's, that's important for people to recognize that that's just one idea. That's just an idea of monitoring and thinking differently. Um, but the bigger piece for me is about how you and you promote in the book around taking an experimental mindset and thinking differently about the way you experience change and and the world that we're we're working and living in of viewing viewing the world as almost a small experiments to to handle change and that test and learn cycle um is this is this something that you found for teams and leaders to be a helpful way to reframe change potentially away from challenge into oh let's look and see and find out for ourselves well i think you know if you're going to break down ignorance and what you don't know about the world if you're going to embrace uncertainty taking a a kind of i know plan and act approach here's an idea let's implement it and then i'm going to get good night's sleep or here's a good idea i'm going to turn it into a multi-million pound product the failure rate is incredibly high, as we know, because we don't know what we don't know about solving those problems. An experimental uh, approach that has a number of benefits in that setting a hypothesis and then testing it can help you to surface the underlying assumptions that you can't see. It can therefore you know, help you to lean into the blind spots of your knowledge. It can help you to cope with failure in a much better way, much more poised way. It can help you to learn faster. It can help you to adapt more quickly. It can take the stakes down of, of failure in terms of personal and, and you know, collective failure. It has so many benefits. Um, but the most important one is that it just allows you to move much more quickly um, in areas where you don't really know what you're doing, uh, rather than try and perfect something and then find out it's wrong and then go back to the drawing board or ignore it for a period of time. And I think in terms of how we all need to face uh, a more uncertain future an experimental mindset where you're dealing on uncertainty is the, is the way to go and that um, reminds me of, a, of a, a small paragraph that you put aside to the intelligence trap and encouraging people to switch from knowing to discovery and um, I think this is something that I really have have tried to encourage you know the performance professionals of the future to be to be thinking differently about <clears throat> because one of the things I see is all the time is that people graduate from their u- university education and they they want to just tell the world what they know we we we've spent sort of from five years old um, certainly in the UK maybe a bit later in some progressive countries um, the moving from this knowing to discovery. Uh, approach that's something that really strikes me as as being fundamental mind shift you mentioned the next generation this is this is where it's at i think yeah well i mean i think knowing doing you know the interesting psychological studies in this is that the more you know the less curious you can become because you what you know becomes the way in which you frame everything set aside ego and set aside um you know this is a profound challenge for all of us that the more we know the more we can believe that we understand other things it's called overclaiming uh the dunning curve effect and so on um so it's a natural kind of tendency or 
bias that we have and trying to pull those thing, two things apart and ask ourselves, what don't we know? How could we be wrong? What am I missing here? And so on. It's not about being ignorant. It's about embracing our vulnerability when we're in situations where we're either with people that you know are not like us or situations that we've not encountered before. And as you know, again, you know, something we've talked about, your strength is in embracing your vulnerability <laughs> a lot of the time, especially yeah. when you're in situations that are testing you uh, for the first time. Super interesting, John, and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat through, but but also assembling the work. It's it's uh, powerful in its stretch and its reach and its depth of of thought. So um, congratulations on the book. Um, for people who might want to find out a little bit more, where can they follow along? Super interesting, John, and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat through, but but also assembling the work. It's it's uh, powerful in its stretch and its reach and its depth of of thought. So um, congratulations on the book. Um, for people who might want to find out a little bit more, where can they follow along? Well, um, I have got a, a newsletter on LinkedIn uh, called uh, Mindset Monthly, and that will help uh, people to, uh, to kind of track some of the ideas. Um, and uh, we have a podcast, as you know, which you've been on, um, I run with my co-host Scott Allender, and we, we feature quite a lot of the uh, the topics there that we're looking at. And um, obviously, the book is now available in Audible. And uh, for those of you who, who like to, to catch it in the train or in the car as well, so number of number of different ways you can tap into these ideas. Fantastic. Well, we'll put all the links. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, we'll put all the links into the show notes, uh, John. So hopefully people will uh, tune in and start tapping into this because it's such a powerful way to to be thinking about themselves, looking after themselves, so that we're able to work with others and, and navigate this world. So thank you. Thank you, Steve. It was always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen i really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation now we've got plenty more to come so if you'd like to support and champion us then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on spotify itunes stitcher youtube or wherever you tune in you can also give us a follow on twitter instagram and linkedin all the links are in the show notes so in the meantime have a great week